Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. We're living in a world continually impacted by more frequent and intense natural crises, the Earth's responses to past and current human activity. The good news is that crisis creates leadership, according to Andrew Leveris, former CEO of Dow. In our conversation in Davos 2020, Andrew gives us hope in alerting us that an intellectual revolution is happening. New models of leadership, business, and governance are beginning to be proposed and considered, while new intersections of leadership among formerly isolated groups in government, business, and society are beginning to take shape. We're certainly not there yet, but the good news is that there's economic opportunity in regenerating nature and in turning waste to wealth. So let's listen to more of what Andrew has to say about collaborating forward on issues of natural capital, plastic pollution, and sustainability. This is Catherine Cunningham. I'm here with Andrew Leveris, who is the former CEO and chair of Dow. Welcome. Thank you, Catherine. Well, wonderful to meet with you. Well, of course, you know, today is a big day in Davos, and the focus of the forum is on creating public-private partnerships and good leadership for the betterment of humanity and the world. What does good leadership look like? If we talk about the importance of valuing natural capital, the importance of mm-hmm. social equity, how do we integrate those ethics and values into our KPIs, into our business goals and ethics? Yeah, Catherine, thank you. I, look, uh, I've been coming to Davos for over a decade, and uh, the conversations keep evolving to reach a point of a spear that ha- helps answer that sort of question. I don't think we're there yet, but we're starting to see great signs. I mean, leadership in the 20th century, and as we came into this century, uh, was mostly in verticals. Uh, so there was business leadership, there was political leadership, there was NGO leadership, there, there a lot of verticals. And what I think has happened, mostly because of the the new pressure points that have arrived, mostly from the younger generation, which I totally applaud and laud. And I say it's a, it's arrived for a very good reason. We're heading to calamity on the planet. We're heading to 9 billion people by 2050. We've got many, many now gaping wounds that we have to now address. And so, so okay, crisis creates leadership. And leadership of the new type, in my mind, is leadership at the intersection points. And so we are intersecting. We're intercepting scientists and academia and government and stakeholders of all sorts, including citizens, who are expressing their anger and their voice through voting for people that are not born of body politic and business. And in fact, business in my mind is when I was leading Dow, I never saw business as a vertical. I saw it as an inclusive community of people that were involved in what Dow was doing for a living. And there were KPIs, of course, of the financial kind, but KPIs of the community kind, KPIs of the natural kind. I helped lead a project with the Nature Conservancy to actually put a value on natural capital because I believe that by putting a human footprint into nature, there should be a value to that. We should actually value what we're doing to nature such that we could uh, restore nature, so we could replenish it, so we could build out answers to these dilemmas I just talked about like carbon emissions and polluting water and all the things that we do that governments aren't regulating and in fact haven't found an answer to. So leadership in this century, leadership going forward, this inclusion word's getting used a lot, but I find inclusiveness being passive. You know, we need an active leadership model, best explained by the notion that you've got to crowdsource inputs and then you've got to emerge from that with 
leadership from every generation being included in taking decisions that are of the institutional kind. In fact, my bottom line on this is we are in search of a new type of institution. We're in search of a new type of decision-making body, and we're in transition. And while we're in this transition, we'll celebrate leadership from wherever it appears from. Business leaders, political leaders, the new kind, younger people running for political office, the Gretas of the world. Yes, this is the type of leadership we need. They aggregate capabilities, they aggregate thought, and they force existing institutions to make changes. I don't call it anarchy. It's not revolution of the military kind, but it's revolution of the brain kind. We're being much more thoughtful by following leaders like that. And I actually think that's what I was trying to do at Dow for all those years, is put Dow into a completely different thought pattern, and I'm very pleased to see it continue on issues such as sustainability, natural capital, and digital, and the evolution of artificial intelligence and how humanity copes with it. Well, we mentioned earlier the importance of orienting oneself from a position of representing the optimal potential of a human person, and that is one that's socially connected, that understands that we are you know, in fact, having a planetary scale influence, that we have somewhat of a stewardship role. And beyond that, business, it seems, is really waking up to the fact right. that these are the resources that we depend on for our business to continue and create a legacy. Yes. It really feels like we're at this turning point, and you mentioned you're part of Richard Branson's B team. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can share with the audience a bit more about what the business community is actually doing. How are you now taking this new leadership model and, and understanding that we're in this transition? How are you taking advantage of this disruptive space to really then craft that new economy, that new capitalism? That is a great example of an intersection. The B team brings together, I think we're up to 25 thought leaders around the world from all sorts of communities, not just business, but you know NGOs and academia. These are people that you know he assembled that has now formed itself into a structure that's trying to amplify these new messages into the existing institutions to cause them to create new institutions. It's not a big group of people, but it's a very impactful group. And so we're here at Davos in force, and I'm actually doing a couple of events for them. But beyond events, it's really to actually say, well, what are these new intersection points that matter? And obviously, there's the ones in front of our very eyes. So the climate change debate. You know, here's some solution sets on climate change that the current institutions have been loath to put together. Here's why the Paris framework matters, and here's the sorts of things each country should be doing within the Paris framework. So developing content so that it could push on, on that uh, topic. Gender equality, another big one. And so, you know, we've lagged and we've you know, treated, you know, the female side of the workforce very poorly over. A, 100 years of industrialization. So how do we fix that? Governance and transparency and fighting corruption. You know, how do we actually help emerging countries generation skip on ethics, especially in the cyber age? And, you know, what do we do in terms of money laundering and child trafficking and, you know, slaves of the modern kind? So that's another big one. And probably the fourth is um, one near and dear to your heart, which is natural capital. And, you know, how do we actually put in place new rules of the road in terms of the KPIs around, you know, not just the climate change, I mean, one near and dear to my heart, plastics, and, you know, how do we complete the life cycle on plastics? So these are the sorts of things we get involved in, but it's because there's no institution doing this. So I've been asked to join groups like that because I've been quite vocal on this, even in my tenure at Dow. And so in my next act here, I find it quite a privilege 
to join people like that. But I'm a restless individual. I just don't want to be on podiums talking about it. I want to actually go out there and impact governments and current institutions to create the new institution. My very next session here is actually on something to do with that. So that's kind of part of my answer to your question, but it's unanswerable right now. Which is an exciting space to be and yeah. one where we need to be thoughtful. And right. when we look at the, the whole issue on plastics, it's a fascinating story because really I feel that the global community really woke up as well yeah. when we started to talk about the physical plastics, the incredible expanse of plastics in the oceans, and that these microplastics were actually getting into the food that we're eating through the, right. the fish. And then it became very personal because this is my health and my own yes, personal well-being. Exactly. Could you share with us, I'm sure your audience is excited to hear that leaders like yourself are really actively thinking about how we reduce and actually eradicate plastics from the system or figure out this circular economy, a way to deal with plastics in our ecosystem. Could you elaborate on what you're doing? Yeah, so the tools of life cycle analysis and where things end up have been around for at least two decades. Bill McDonough wrote a very famous book, uh, Cradle to Cradle. I mean, so we, we in the business of business have known about full life cycle and then the incentivization to actually take a product that's used by communities, citizens, consumers, and then say, okay, what happens to that product? We have never had the economic framework to incentivize taking the waste and bringing it back and replacing virgin material. So this is the 20th century. I mean, basically, you know, post-World War II, economic revitalism, MacArthurism, rebuilding Germany, rebuilding Japan, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, you know, hunger, I mean, creating a job. You know, we spent five decades really creating economic wealth. Okay? And we arrive into this century and humanity does this amazing thing. It's invented digital, it's brought the internet, it's connected people, it's done a lot of things. And the problem is that governments are the last place for innovation. So governments didn't keep up with the acceleration of technology. And so we have reached this now tipping point where technology now is out there with all sorts of answers, but there's no incentive provided by governments to create answers. And so doing full life cycle on plastics, you know, to actually return it back to its original source, that sort of framework needs to be provided. And so what communities have realized, and what citizens, and of course ocean plastics in particular, is, as you just said, it's not just a surface issue. It's not the stuff that we've obviously put on TV and National Geo and said we've got all this pile of plastic bottles and plastic bags. It's, it's actually the microplastics issue that you raised that is actually a bigger topic. So I've joined an activity called See the Future, SEA, play on words, that was launched by Andrew Forrest and his Mindaroo Foundation. He's putting a billion dollars of his own money uh, he's very, very passionate about the oceans. And he's attracted me because I believe it's my responsibility as a person who's an engineer, who's a scientist type person, but who ran a chemical company that was one of the world's largest producers of plastics. It's my responsibility to bring these modern techniques, modern technologies, modern tools into economic and political frameworks that incentivize recycle and reuse, that we've got to find answers. We agree. You know, consumers especially in first world nations like the United States, are lazy and they won't separate trash. Okay? We unfortunately need to fix that and incentivize, create an economic output at the other end that causes that to be separated, collected. The problem with plastic is not an aluminium can. There are over 52 polymer families that go into everything from cosmetics, 
to fabrics to laundry detergents to plastic bottles, plastic bags, etc. Plastics is ubiquitous in modern life. So now, with only 9% of all plastics produced recycled, 9%. We, we've got to take you know, this incredible dilemma of not just hurting the planet, which we are, but also potentially hurting humans in terms of the micro-issue. No cause-effect analysis, but it's not a good idea to be eating contaminated fish, right? So we all know that. So how do we actually put solutions in place? And these are now political, economic, and here's the good news. There are technology solutions. So frankly, those three things have never been brought together, and we're aggregating all of that. Even the industry itself has formed an alliance to end plastic waste. So the money the technologies and now the political and economic frameworks are being developed to fix this issue. And frankly, I think this next decade will create economic opportunity from that. You know, it's funny to say it, but there is economic opportunity in waste. So it's the frameworks that we have to fix. And, yes. uh, you know, and I think that means a new type of institution. I keep coming back to that. People in government just don't understand. I mean, it's, it's a travesty to me to think about digital and the lack of understanding about how to fix the cyber issue, lack of understanding on sustainability, how to fix sustainability. Regulation is a lagging indicator. Proactive regulation of the type we're talking about here has to come from the affected communities. Consumers, citizens, people who vote, and of course, the supply chains of business. And that's where this is coming from. Well, you know what's interesting? There's actually a fourth driver, I think, that is that we are all part of this species called Homo sapiens, yes. smart hominoids. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, and we have an internal survival yeah. drive. We're and resilient, so aren't we? We are resilient, <laughs> but I think that yeah. actually awareness and understanding the yeah. gravity of it's the problem huge. is really what's driven people to understand we need to actually... And interviews like this. And interviews like this that yeah. help actually yeah. amplify, I think, the message out yeah. to other people and give opportunities for these kinds yeah. of conversations and, and to I think happen. you play a very vital role in that Thank because you. intelligent journalism you know, is something which has also been a problem. You know, the media has just not done its job. It's reacted to the instant issue, not the long-term game plans here. You know, unfortunately, it creates, you know, like we like to do at the movies, good people and bad people. Right. It splits us into two camps which are artificial. Absolutely. Because only collaboration of the affected with those causing the effect will fix this. And that's humanity's constant learning, you know, through... I'm a student of history, through many, many eras of human history when human homo sapiens would do barbarous things to each other. The solutions that came out of the realization that, you know what, we shouldn't be doing those things to each other as good, bad. We should actually be blending ourselves to find better answers to both of us. And I think this is the learning here. The planet is a living ecosystem that we live with, that is ours and that we're part of. And until we find another planet, which we're not going to find anytime soon, this is the one we have to actually treat with respect. And we have to do things, this generation has to do things, to make that sustainable. The word sustainable comes out in many ways. But this ecosystem of ours that we Homo sapiens are part of, it, it isn't you know celebrities and actors saying, well, industry's bad. Or is it an industry saying government's bad? Or it isn't government saying, you know what, let's put in this new regulation on things I don't understand. So it's up to us to fill that void, and I'm going to be part of that. Beautiful. Me too. And as you suggested, it's about a conversation and a dialogue 
not a sound bite and this no. black and white type of right. differentiation. And what's interesting, mm. we have here Yuval Havari, who is the writer of the 21st century, brilliant man, brilliant books that he's written on Homo sapiens. And one of his points that he makes is that when we were in a world with a number of hominids, Erectus and Neanderthal, our species rose to evolve because of our ability to collaborate, because of our yeah. ability to invite foreign others into our innovation circles. Very interesting is that those same principles of collective action, mm. collaboration, and embracing of the diversity of thought mm. among us, and thoughtful yeah. leadership, as you suggest, not yeah. reactionary, yeah. Yes. is really what actually allowed our species at that time in history to become the dominant hominoid. Yeah, and so here we are, you know, here we go. We have a big evolutionary step in front of us, right? And evolutions of the type you just described, actually are centuries, you know? Well, we don't have centuries. No. Uh, we, we may have a few decades, but I'll, I'll give us maybe that as an outlier. But actually, it's much more urgent than that. So, you know, Davos is a great example. We have a lot of intelligent people getting together all the time. I'm joining groups now that actually take all that great thought and do something about it. So that's what my plan uh, for the next many decades, I hope, to be. Wow. Well, I hope you live forever. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.